excited that you're here. Are you excited to be here? Yeah? It's good to see you guys smile every once in a while. That's a good thing. Hey, so we're in the middle of a series that is that God works through not the perfect, but through the worst. And so I was going to call this message the worst message, and then I thought I probably shouldn't do that. So, um, so I changed it. But we're going we're gonna to walk through the book of Nehemiah. If you want to find that in your Bible or on your phone, it's a little bit before the Psalms, not too hard to find there, um, almost in the middle of your Bible. And the word of the day is prayer. We're going to see that if we had time to look at the whole book of Nehemiah, we'd see that it's a book of prayer. Uh, it's a book of incredible prayer. And it's, sometimes I don't know exactly what to pray. And Nehemiah is a place, actually one time this week, I went to Nehemiah chapter 1 and kind of just prayed his prayer. And found that really helpful. So, so the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to look at God works through the worst, which I think we kind of know, but sometimes in our daily lives we forget that. And as a church, our mission is to help move people from disconnected to disciple. Help move people from disconnected to disciple. And in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah himself and in the people of God, we're going to see that they're the worst group of disconnected people uh, really, really for us to look at. It's the worst disconnected. And disconnected can be that we're disconnected from God in some way, we're disconnected from his church, from his people in some way, we're disconnected from his mission in some way. And so in, in, a, in a very true sense, God is moving all of us. Do, do you sense that? That God's moving all of us from being disconnected in areas of our life to being disciples. If you're not being moved at all, if you're already on the disciple side, I'd like to meet you. That would be pretty awesome because it's because we're all in, the, in this process. And Nehemiah takes place about 100 years after the Israelites begin to come back from captivity. You remember that God, God punished the, the people of Israel. They went into captivity. They went to Babylon. They were there for 70 years. And at the, at the end of 70 years, God begins to bring them back. And Nehemiah is about 100 years after that. They'd begun to build the temple. They'd begun to build the city. But what they hadn't built at all was the wall that goes around the city. And back in those days, the wall was really, really important. It was their, it was their sense of identity. It was also their protection against, against adversaries, against enemies, was this wall that would go around the city. And so Nehemiah is best known, if you know Nehemiah, he's best known for the one who helped build the wall back uh, for the people of Israel. Three things that, that you want to know about Nehemiah is, number one, is that he was cupbearer to the king. And we're going to read that right now, and we'll explain what that is. So we're going to look at chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now in the, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Israel is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So this is a hundred years after they begin to come back, and the wall's broken down, the gates are still destroyed. And Nehemiah says in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, concerning the confession no, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants and who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of the king. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So we see in Nehemiah a few things about him. Number one is that he was the cupbearer to the king and the cupbearer was the one who drank the, the king's wine before the king drank it and he was mainly looking to make sure that it wasn't poisoned so if it was poisonous wine the cupbearer was no more he didn't make it to the next day of work uh, so he, he had ex ex great incredible access to the king he was with the king at all times the king trusted him with his life and uh, that was his job he was a cupbearer and it's important to know second of all about him is that he was a lay person he was not a clergy he wasn't a prophet he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a pastor, he wasn't a Sunday school teacher, he wasn't the one who does the clicking during the church service. Uh, he, just, he just worked. He had his job, he did his job, and he's one of the few people in the Bible that we see that, that God used to do amazing, great things who wasn't clergy. We see a lot of people who God used, especially in the New Testament, where he began to use the apostles and the disciples who were fishermen and tax collectors and different, different ways like that. In the Old Testament, it's pretty unique to see a layperson, somebody without the degree, without the title, who's used in such an incredible, epic, epic way. And that's who Nehemiah was. The other thing that we see about Nehemiah is that he was really disconnected. He was disconnected from the people. He didn't have any idea what was going on until he asked his brother to tell him what was happening in Jerusalem. It seems that he was disconnected from God. We know for sure he was disconnected from God's people, and he was disconnected from the mission. So he had his job, he was doing his job well, he was cupbearer to the king, but he was disconnected from what, from having the relationship with God that he needed, from having the relationship with God's people and with the mission of God. I think that for, for one, it's really important to realize that all of us are disconnected in some way. Number one is we're, we were all at one point disconnected from Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Disconnected. And then after God, through, through Jesus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, as he connects us to God in a relationship with him, as we begin our path to become disciples, there's still areas in our walk with God that we're holding back on, where we're resisting, maybe the areas that we just don't know about. But there's areas in all of our life where we need to be connected with God. Second of all, is connected with his, with his people, his church. And third is his mission. Uh, I think sometimes we get disconnected because we're busy. It's easy to just go about my job, go about my family, but not be in tune with what God's doing in my life, with God's doing in the church and what God's mission is. I think sometimes we can be frustrated, we can be hurt. A lot of people that, that we know are people that were hurt in other, other churches, other relationships, hurt through leadership, and they, they stay at a distance. They stay disconnected because of hurt. Maybe just simply they weren't brought up this way. Maybe just never brought up to have a relationship with God. 
maybe never brought up in a way to, to know what it is to be fully engaged with a church and with the mission of God. Uh, some people, I think it could be they don't see the urgency of the day. One of the things that Nehemiah did, one of the things that, that really stimulated him and jump-started him was when he saw the urgency of the day, when he saw the need that there was. Sometimes we don't see that. Sometimes others don't see that, and they stay at a distance. Sometimes it's what's called the bystander effect. You know what the bystander effect is? It's basically like somebody else is going to take care of it, so I stay a bystander. There's an accident. Somebody else runs in there, does what they need to do. Uh, there's, there's a need at school. Somebody else is probably going to do it. There's a need at church. Somebody else will probably volunteer. It's the bystander effect. It's not that you don't care. It's not that we don't care. It's just we just figure somebody else is going to take care of it for us. And those are, those are different reasons why we stay disconnected at times. So we want to look at how Nehemiah got connected. I want to look at just a few different things. It's not going to take us a ton of time. The first thing he did is that he took inventory. We see that in verse, verses 1 through 3 where he asked him concerning the, the Jews. He asked his brother concerning the Jews, and his brother answered in verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile was in great trouble and shame. So he, so he inquired. He took inventory. He asked, what's going on? He said, that your, your brothers are in great trial. They're in great difficulty. They're in a, they're in a really, really bad place. And the, this news affected Nehemiah. I don't know if you and I are that way. We ask somebody how they're doing, and they say, ah, I'm not really doing that well. You know, how much that affects us. But he heard the news of the people of God, and it impacted him so much that he was fasting, he was praying, he was mourning, he was weeping. It lasted for a really long time. It really impacted him. And so you and I would want to take inventory of ourselves. You know, what's the, what's the state of my own soul? If I want to gauge if I'm disconnected in some way, what, what's, the, what's the state of my soul? Where am I at with my relationship with God? I think it was great that Seth led us through this morning the things that we fear. What is it about our relationship with God that we fear? Uh, when I was growing up, they always said, don't be afraid to, to follow God because you think he's going to send you to Africa someplace. You know, it's like, man I, don't, man, I don't know what's going to happen. God's going to send me to the backside of Africa, wherever that is. Uh, you know, so what is it that, that would keep you from growing in your relationship with God? And this morning, what we want to do is we want to identify those areas, and then we want to take steps and, and, and grow in our relationship with God. We take inventory of our family. What's the state of your family today? Could be your immediate family. You know, if you've still got kids at home, it could be your family with your adult kids. It could be extended families. What's the state of your family if your family's in shambles, and last week we talked about that, we talked about the worst family with the family of David, you know, it's important to take inventory of that. I don't then just go sit in the seat of defeat and just shrink down, but I realize, hey, my family's not in a good place. What about your community? What state is your community in? What about your church? What state is your church in? What about the schools that your kids go to? What about our nation? What about our world? You take inventory. You do like uh, Nehemiah did, and you inquire, and you ask, how are things? And that can be a stimulus for us to then get, get engaged and get connected in some way. And I think it's important this morning uh, to realize that what I said in the beginning, I said on, for a reason, that we're all disconnected. It's really an illusion to think, and it's, it's, it's a lie to think that everybody else is in a great place except me. I mean, if you want to think that about me, that's fine. But when you think that about yourself, you know, everybody's in a good place except me. That's just not true. 
And I think we work really hard as a church to, to let everybody know, man, we're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. We're all sinners. We're all broken. And I understand that your pain is unique, and I don't want to minimize your pain. I definitely don't want to compare your pain to my pain. The pain of, of being hairless is a pain that some of you don't ever have to live through. Uh, my wife has to, to see that a, a lot. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? I don't want to, I don't want to compare the pain, but there's, but there's pain in our lives. You know, if we let down the mask, which we try and do, as we say, come as you are, it's to realize that we're all in this boat. So when I talked this morning about being disconnected, uh, that's me. That, that's you. That's the person sitting beside you. So the first thing is to take inventory. What is the state of things? What's the state of my soul? What's the state of my family? What's the state of my church, my community? In what condition are we in today? Would you ask that question? The second step is prayer that we see Nehemiah take. And we really see uh, a couple different components to prayer. The first one is praise. We see it in verse 4 and 5. Uh, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And now he begins to pray a prayer of praise. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He starts with praise. He starts with exalting God. And a simple way to understand praise is, is to lift up God, to exalt God, to magnify. The Bible says to come magnify the Lord with me, which would mean to focus in on his, on his character and his attributes. And that's what Nehemiah does here. He says, O Lord God of heaven, you're the great and the awesome God. And you're the God who keeps your covenant and your steadfast love. So praise properly identifies God. Praise follows, a lot of times, praise follows answered prayer. That's hard to say for some reason. Praise follows answered prayer. A lot of times when, some, when God comes through in our life, when something goes really well, then we feel like we want to praise him, which is an appropriate thing to do. Gratitude's an incredibly important thing. Uh, we kicked this around with the worship team on uh, Thursday night, and we talked about what does this passage show us, and one of the people said it shows us gratitude. And gratitude is, is important, and gratitude a lot of times is following answered prayer. But this prayer of praise, listen real close, is before he ever saw any of the answers. It's a different kind of praise when we praise God before we see the answer, before we see the miracle, before we see the breakthrough, before we see the change. We still magnify God. We still lift him up. And our prayer time, instead of just being completely overwhelmed and down with the things that I'm dealing with, I take time and I lift him up, even though I'm not seeing the results. That's what Nehemiah did, right? The wall ain't been built. There's nothing that's been happening yet. But what he does is he spends time in praise. And praise, really what praise does is it realigns us with the purpose of God. One of the most important parts about praise is praise takes the focus off of us. Because the, the reality is, is that we're part of God's story. The Bible is a book about the story of God. It's not a book about me. Our time of praise and worship is not a time to sing about us. It's a time to sing about God. When I, when I pray at home and I praise him at home, it's to be about him. And it realigns his story and it puts me in the story of God. Instead of trying to figure out how to plug God into my story, I realize that God's up to something in the world today and I plug into that. Does that make sense? And I know that we know that, but praise is a great part to help us with that. Psalm 79, 9 says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Do we have that one? 
Psalm 79.9, it says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. So God, we're asking you to save us for your name's sake. We're asking you to break through and to answer prayer and to help us, to provide for us, to, to heal us, all the things that we pray for, for your name's sake, God. It Praise reorients the thing. Praise puts God at the center instead of us, which is really, really, really important. You know, think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The Lord's Prayer is not a prayer about my kingdom. It's not a prayer about everything that I want to do. It's a prayer to reorient me so that I see that I'm a part of God's story. I mean, that's really exhilarating when you think about it. When you think about uh, that God would allow us to be a part of his story, that God would call us into his story, and it takes the weight off of things that it's not all about me. It could Because if it's about God, then God's the one who's responsible. So if you're, if you're new to Christianity, and this is kind of all new to you, you know, the God of heaven is at work in the world today. The God of heaven has a plan. He has a strategy. He's sovereign. Nothing can thwart his plans. And I, and I, I play a part of that. I, I get to have a role in that. I'm a part of his story. So we see praise in his prayer. The second part of his prayer is we see confession. Verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you command your servant Moses. So again, in a book about prayer, where prayer plays an incredible part in this book, he gives us a couple ideas on how to pray. One is to pray with praise, really to begin with praise, to begin. Think about when you're at your lowest moment, when things are really hard, if you, if you got into a place where you, where you begin to praise God. If you don't know what to say or don't know how to praise God, go into the Psalms and just read them out loud. I do that quite often because I don't know what to say. I'm like really bummed out, things aren't going the way that I want, and so then I go and I read the Psalms because I want to reorient things. But so besides praise, it's confession. Confession of sin is a daily part of a believer's life. Confession, confession of sin is a daily part of our lives. You come to church and the thoughts come into your mind that you're the only one that has a struggle with sin, and it's just, not, it's just absolutely not true. The, the problem is when the Christian thinks that they don't have sin. You know, when the Christian tries to act like they're better than everybody else. Because everybody can read right through that. If I, if I want to put up a thing with people that know me and try and act like I'm better than them, they just see right through that, right? Because we're all broken, we're all sinful. And so confession should be something that we do on a daily basis, multiple times through the day. God, forgive me my sin. Look at uh, Psalm 32.5. I'm not sure if it's going to come up or not, but I'll read it to you. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He goes, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't try and cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. You have to see how breathtaking those words are. Can you imagine what it's saying? That, that I simply confess. I just speak the truth. God, I've sinned. I treated my wife the way I wasn't supposed to. 
I treated other people the way I wasn't supposed to. I didn't love you the way that I'm supposed to love you. The, the two great commands are to love God and to love our neighbor. I didn't do those things well. Father, forgive me. And the Bible shows here that he'll forgive our sins. It's incredible. He'll actually do it. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's incredible. And then it goes on to say, but if we say that we do not sin, we have not sinned, it says we make God a liar. So the problem isn't that I say that I'm a sinner. The problem becomes when I try and act like I don't have sin. Does that make sense? I mean, that's why we do communion. Not to, not to prove to God, hey, I did great, but to come and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm being honest. I'm being truthful. We talk a lot as a worship team about not being on, on one of the extremes. Either that, you know, my, my life is so in line, my life is so perfect, I don't, I don't really need to confess my sin. When we do that, there's, there's this incredible lack of gratitude in our lives. There's a lack of, of uh, impetus to want to wanna worship God, to serve God, to love people, to lay down my life for people, because I have this sense that I'm better than everybody else. So we want to stay away from that extreme. We want to stay away from the other extreme, too, that I'm just such a terrible person that, you know, that I just keep my head down, I, I never get to say anything, uh, I'm just condemned. We don't want to do that. We want to be honest and truthful about two things. One is that I'm a sinner, and number two is that God's willing to forgive me if I'll confess that sin to him. That's incredible. It doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter how far away from God you are in all of your life or in a certain area of your life. It doesn't matter what you've hidden. It doesn't matter what uh, you haven't told people. None of that matters if you'll go to God and if you'll confess your sin. The Bible says that he's faithful and he's just to forgive that. That's what confession is. That's what Nehemiah does. He comes and he says, God, me and my father's house, we've sinned against you. He doesn't try and hide that. He doesn't come and say, God, I'm a powerful person. I'm the cupbearer to the king. The king trusts me, and I get to drink a lot of wine every day to make sure the king's okay. He doesn't come and do that. He comes and says, I've sinned. I'm a sinner. And it doesn't crush him. It liberates him. Because we, we can see later the, the type of activity in his life. The next thing that we see in the prayer, so we see praise, we see confession. The next thing we see is the actual petition. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. That's his prayer. That's his petition. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. A lot of times that's our prayer. Lord, give me this. Lord, I need this. Lord, my family needs this. Those aren't bad things. My children need this. My parents need this. That's usually our prayer. What Nehemiah did is he started with praise. Then he confessed his sin. And then he went to him and he made his petition. And his petition was really, really simple. His petition was simply, God grant me success. I love that it's not some big fancy prayer. I love it that it's not just some beautiful piece of perfect doctrine in theology is prayer. It's really simple. God, give us success. Help us to do well in this. I have a quote from Max Lucado who says, Our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. Amen. It's not about how well I say things. Guys, I would have been checked out a long time ago. 
people would have checked me out a long time ago. That's, that's not my thing, is to be perfect and eloquent and all of a sudden learn King James when I pray. Thouest and theest and thouest. That's not, that's not, man, it's just come to God and just say, God, help. What if tomorrow your prayer was just simply, God, you are great, you are merciful, God, forgive me, and God, help me. <laughs> I mean, that's a prayer. Read, read the Lord's Prayer. Again, Matthew chapter 6, and tell me that it's a whole lot different than that. It really isn't. Jesus said it, so it was cooler. But he never tells me I've got to be Jesus, so I just be me. So that's his prayer. The second thing he does is, so he prays, and then he takes action. So we're talking about going from being disconnected to becoming a disciple, to becoming connected again. So I pray, I take inventory, I pray, and then next, I take action. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says to the people of Israel, now he's in, he's in Israel, he's in Jerusalem, he's talking to the people. He says, you see the trouble we're in now, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of God, uh, that of my God, that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. He took action. To become connected again to God after being disconnected in whatever area is of my life. Maybe your takeaway is, man, I just don't pray enough. Or maybe I just, I, I, I've made my prayers too selfish. Or maybe I've made my prayers, I don't know, whatever. Whatever that disconnected part is where you need to reconnect with God. We need to take action. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. I love this one. These are just verses of action. He says, I looked around and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, again, talking to the people of Israel, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your home, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. Isn't that a great verse? I've got that circled as one of my favorite verses in the book of Nehemiah. You know what, man? It's time. Sometimes it's just time to rise up and fight. Sometimes it's time to rise up and really take action. And I, I'm in that place in my life right now where I feel beat up in a certain area. I feel, I feel fearful in a certain area. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, man, God, I need to fight for my family. I need to fight. And for my brothers, which, which are you guys, put in an effort and fight. So he takes action. He takes inventory, he prays, he takes action, and the last thing he does is he endures hardship. He just takes it on the chin and he keeps going. There's a strange thing that happens to us when we try and reconcile with God and we try and start over. I start over all the time with God. I've always called myself the prodigal a million times over. You know, just keep coming back, keep starting over all the time constantly 
But what happens is when we do that, then we expect everything to just be easy. We just figure, hey, I've, I've made the right decision. By golly, it's going to be great now. And sometimes we make that decision, and then we just have to endure the hardship. We have to just stick it out. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest ways to stick it out is by yourself. That's really hard. And that's our tendency, male or female. That's our tendency is just to stick it out by ourselves. And we're part of a body. The Bible calls this gathering today, calls one of the ways it calls us is the body of Christ, calls us the family of God, calls us brothers and sisters. And we live in a world where we'll let any little difference between us, any different ideology difference between us, cause us to not feel like brothers and sisters anymore. And what that's done is it's isolated us. It's caused us to walk alone. And when you're enduring hardship, when you're going through something hard for doing the right things, you and I aren't wired, maybe you are, I'm not wired to, to, to get kicked in the rumpus for doing the right thing. I just, I'm just not wired that way. I'm wired in such a way that if I do the right thing, people are going to pat me on the back, people are going to applaud, people are going to tell me how nice I dressed, uh, people are just going to be great to me. Life's going to be easier. That's the way I'm wired. You know, the way that I know that is because we think all the time, we think, well, why is that happening to so-and-so? They're such a good person. Right? Just when we say that, we reveal a little bit of theology that's a little bit messed up. Not, not that we shouldn't care for the person and not that we shouldn't care that the person's a good person. But what we're saying when I say, why would that ever happen to them? They're such a good person, is what I'm saying is because they're good, their life should be easier. And I hate it when somebody's life isn't easy. I hate it when you go through hard times and you go through cancer and you go through divorce and you go through hard times with your kids and illnesses and losing jobs and financial difficulty. Uh, but that doesn't come because I'm a bad person. When we studied the book of Job a few weeks ago, we looked at that, that it doesn't just bad things don't happen because I'm a bad person and good things don't happen just because I'm a good person. The, the thing is, is that I just, I do what God's called me to do. I decide like he decided Let's fight for our families. Let's fight for our brothers. Let's fight for our church. Let's fight for our community. Let's fight for our nation. And then after that, I have to endure the hardship that comes with it. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We're just going to look at a couple examples of this hardship, and then we'll end. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. So he's somebody that, that's from another nation, and, he, and he's greatly enraged. You know, I mean, get a life, guy. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they rebuild this wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt ones of that? And then Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall saying that what they're building is such terrible quality that you just even a little animal jumps up on the wall, it's going to fall down. So there's some hardship, there's some opposition. And look what they do in verses 4 and 5. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together. So what does he do? Guess what he does when opposition comes? He prays. It's a book of prayer. Opposition, hardship comes. I, I make a good decision. I've confessed my sin. 
uh, I'm moving forward, I'm taking action, I'm listening to the preacher, and things just get tough. Things get really hard. What do I do? I pray. Look at verses 7 and 8, more opposition. But then Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that we were repairing the walls of Jerusalem, was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, and they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And so what did we do? We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Here in this situation, the hardship in the op is, is opposition from other people, and that isn't always our hardship. And I definitely don't want to make it out today that our enemy is other people, because that's not, that's not true at all. Hardship just comes in a, in a myriad of ways. It comes in a in hundred different flavors. Again, it could be financial hardship. It could be health issues. It could be relational. Uh, it could be in my job. It could be in my family. It could be with my neighbor. It could be all kinds of different things. Um, but what he does is pray. And then last, last one, verse 16. And then we'll jump to verse 21, verses 16 and 21. It says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. This is really fascinating. Just follow this. We're almost done. Half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the, the, stood behind the whole house of Israel. So can you see? I mean, half of them have, have whatever. I can't think of the name of the thing that you put mortar on brick with. What is it? A who? Yes. Still don't know. I was going to say shovel. Uh, uh, a trial? Trowel. Trowel. Gotcha. Sorry. We're going to edit this out of the, out of the recording. Um, the trowel. Uh, half of them have got the trowel. Half of them have got um, their, their, uh, their swords and their shields. So half are, are working. Half are ready to fight. Verse 21. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. So half of them labored, half of them held the spears. That's the way they, they dealt with hardship. Part of dealing with hardship is just buckling down and staying at it. One way to look at this is that when it says that they held their, their, their spears, their swords, is, is one way to look at that is that's a symbol of the Word of God. Because the Bible says that the Word of God in Hebrews is a two-edged sword. So it's like they're working, we know that they're praying, and they've got the Word of God. Man, I really, really, really encourage you to, to find a way to have a habit of spending time in the Word of God. This week, one of the things, because one of the biggest, the biggest obstacles, believe it or not, after having tried to help people for over 30 years read the Word of God, one of the biggest obstacles is somebody's going to say, I don't know what to read. And you can get up in the morning or late at night or for your lunch break and get your Bible out, your Bible on your phone, and you just don't know what to read. And you do the old flip it around and, and just open it up, and it says, I will make Pathros a desolation and will set fire to Zoan. Okay. Well, I'm ready to set fire. I don't know what I'm going to do, right? How about this week? Read the book of Nehemiah. It's not going to bore you. It's really good. Note, note the amount of times that he talks about prayer. Read the prayers. Say the prayers. Uh, a lot of the saints of old, they had books of prayers, and they would literally say prayers. And we got away from that because we thought it was rote. 
you know, it's just, it's just mindless repetition over and over and over, the same thing over and over. Uh, but that's, that's something that I go to a lot, is I'll just look up prayers, and I'll read prayers out of the Bibles. There's certain prayers that I think are great prayers. Uh, the Apostle Paul at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 is a great prayer. Apostle Paul at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 is a great prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1 is a great prayer. Pray Psalm 1. Pray Psalm, this week I read in my devotion, Psalm 19, Psalm 1, made those prayers. So we take inventory. What is the state of affairs? What about my soul? What is the state of affairs of my soul, my family, the people that I love so much? What is the state? What state are we in? Number two is he prayed. And he prayed with praise, with confession, and with a petition. And then he took action, and then he endured hardship. It's the way, it's, it's Nehemiah showing us, God showing us through Nehemiah a way to go from disconnected to being connected again. All of us are on the path to becoming disciples. None of us have arrived. The Apostle Paul, who would have been the one that we would have said, had it all together, said, I haven't arrived. Apostle Paul, who we think had it all together, said, who will deliver me from this wretched man of sin that I am? Can you imagine that? Paul wasn't just talking about his past. He was talking about his present. He says, who's going to deliver me from this wretched man that I am? That's Romans chapter 7. And, and then fun, turn finishes in Romans chapter 8 where it says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning. We're all in the same boat. Um, we're all growing. We're all changing. We're all part of this incredible story of God. I was having a talk with one of my friends the other day, and I'll end with this, about legacy. And I was worried about my legacy. And he just kind of flipped it on me. I said, this is, this is God's story. This isn't your story. And I know legacy is important. But what if, what, if, what if in God's great story, I'm just one little punctuation mark? What if I'm one little parenthesis? Am I willing to be the person that God's called me to be? Am I willing to live the life that he's wanted? So no matter where you are this morning, no matter what place you are, God invites you to be a part of his story. He invites you to come into his family and be part of his story. Let's pray together. Let's just take just a second and kind of calm our hearts down. Maybe that's just for me. Let's just take inventory, just for a second. Man, if you were going to be honest, if somebody that you completely, absolutely trusted came and said, hey, tell me, tell me about your soul right now. Tell me about your relationship with God. Tell me about the place that your family's in. Tell me how comfortable you are with your kids' schools and with your community. Tell me what your church needs. Tell me about your city, your state, your nation. What would you say to them? God, we take inventory because you're the one that's asking us those questions and you're the one that we can trust. You're the one that sees us absolutely, completely defenseless, excuseless, naked, and you love us. You love us. 
God, I believe that we're part of your story, and I believe, God, that you're in the process of changing us. You're in the process of taking us from mourning to victory, as we're going to sing in a minute, taking us from graves to gardens, a place of disconnectedness to a place of being a disciple. We love you, Jesus, so, so much. We love you. We worship you. We declare that you're great. We declare, God, that you're perfect. Every thought that you have towards us is perfect. Every plan that you have for our lives is perfect. Your response to every difficulty that we go through is perfect. Your response to the way people have hurt us and offended us, devastated us in the past, Lord, your response to that is perfect because you promised to make all things work for good. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.